I mentioned last week that from verses 23 to 26, back in chapter 3, Paul alludes to the common practice of placing sons under the tutorage of a paedagogos, who would be responsible for the education and discipline of that child until their coming of age, when they're no longer under that tutor, uh, verse 25, but now take their proper place as a son and heir. At the start of chapter 4, Paul returns to that illustration to press home why it is that having come to salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, and having been established as God's son and an heir of the promise with Christ, it would indeed be total folly to place yourself back under the burden of law-keeping. Why would you do that? Given that you have now become this, says Paul, why, oh why, would you want to go back to that? Well, let's see if we can follow his train of thought through these next 11 verses. Well, his first point is that you were formerly a slave, what you used to be. And here's the illustration. Here is a young son in a Greek, a Greek home. And from the age of about seven, his father hands him over to one who will act as his tutor and governor the paedagogos. The boy is an heir. He will one day receive his father's inheritance. Uh, there is a sense in which he is master of all. And he is master of all in the sense that everything that belongs to his father will one day belong to him. Everything that his father currently has authority over, one day it will be the son who has authority over all of those things. There is, if you like, a promise in place by means of inheritance that all of this one day will be his. But right now, He's not living at all in the experience of that. Indeed, right now, he's no different to one of the household slaves. All of the slaves in a house are under a bondage of law-keeping. Their duty is to follow and obey orders and instructions and for as long as this lad remains under his paedagogos, he finds himself in exactly the same position as a slave. There is this man, and sometimes others in the household too, who have authority over him. And he has to do as um, they instruct him to do. They are responsible for disciplining him if he strays and 
under these guardians and stewards, they are constantly telling him what to do, what to wear, where to go and when, uh, advising him of the things that are not permissible for him to do and so on. And so Paul uses that picture of this son who is an heir, but who at the moment has no experience of that reality whatsoever. And he uses that to speak of believers because Paul here is talking to Christian believers. All were once like that little boy, he says. We were in bondage, in captivity, under all kinds of things which we believed would benefit us if we went after them. Paul is painting with a very broad brush at this point so that it applies to all of us regardless of our background. Although he does have in mind in particular those brought up and raised under Jewish tradition. But all of us, when we didn't know God, if you look forward to verse 8, all of us, when we didn't know God, all of us had things set up in our lives which we served in the belief that to achieve that or to attain that or to have that, to possess it, whatever it may be, uh, for the Jews, it was keeping the law and being able to say that I've kept this and this and this and this. For people today, it's completely different things. Um, it's striving to have that house, that car, that salary, that position, that annual holiday, that lifestyle, that reputation, that pattern of good works. Whatever it is, serving that in the belief that it will somehow be for your betterment or for your advantage. And so in some way serve you as a God, even though they're not gods. So he uses quite a wide brush stroke in verse 3. In case you think that because you're not Jewish, uh, this talk of law doesn't apply to you. We're all held under bondage. We're all held in captivity by something. And we believe that if we go after certain things, they'll do something for us. And that in itself is holding us in bondage to those things. And all of us are slaves to something, even if it's something of our own invention. And of course, as long as you're focused on that, as long as you're chasing after that, Satan is quite content to keep you where you are. In terms of these Jewish believers, they had lived in a, <clears throat> in a situation where the law, uh, the law of God had become a, a very great burden upon them. These Greek children, Paul is using as an illustration, they could often find that this tutor that they were under could be quite harsh. 
could even be quite brutal at times. More harsh and more brutal, perhaps, than their father had ever intended for them. That certainly was what men like the Pharisees had done with the law of God. They'd made it much harsher than God ever intended for it to be. They tyrannised people with the law, forever finding fault with people, like the accusations they would bring against Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath day, asking the once lame man who now can walk to stand up and carry his bed home. How dare you do that on the Sabbath day, Jesus? The law had become this unliftable burden that was placed upon people. Uh, John Stott said on these verses, verses 1 to 3, the devil has used the law of God, which in itself is good, the law is good, it's helpful, it's purposeful, but the devil has used it in a way the father never intended. God intended the law to reveal sin and drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step, interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a stumbling block to bondage. That's how it was for you, he says. You were under this great burden, under this great bondage. And actually that's the ploy that Satan uses in all of us in one way or another. Because as Paul says in his opening to the Romans, all people know in their conscience that the sinful things that they are doing are sin. And all are without excuse. Because when their conscience prompts them towards that which is right and good, they know that they are choosing that which is wrong. And they consciously make wrong choices. They knowingly, willfully make wrong choices. We are all being held under this bondage of not being able to live up to that which we know we ought to live up to. But, from verse 4, Paul says, God brings us from that place of being like a slave under bondage and makes us to be a son. And that's verses 4 to 7. We are taken from being slaves under bondage and set free and set at liberty to become a son. So here's the Greek son under his tutor, but he's no longer seven years old, or eight, or nine, or ten, or thirteen, or fourteen. 
but now, often at the age of around 18 or so, at the time chosen by his father, the tutor he's under has no say in the matter. It's entirely down to his father. At the time chosen by his father, the son is removed from under the guardianship of that man and his father receives him publicly as his son. That time was always coming. The father always had that time in view. On the very, on the very first day that the son was put under that tutor, the father had in mind the day when he would come out at the other end and be released from that and be established as his son. The time was always coming and now it has. And now everything changes as the son at last experiences for himself in all its fullness what it is to live as a son and an heir. And those slave-like days are behind him forever now. Will he seek to live in a way that pleases his father? Of course he will. But he does so as a son. And he does so because he's a son. And he does so out of love and reverence for his father. So it was with God and you, says Paul, in verses 4 to 7. It was always about the promise given. And when it was God's appointed time, the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, came into the world in fulfilment of the promise. And by means of his death and resurrection, he ransomed us, redeemed us, and changed completely our relationship to God and his law. He was born into that situation that we were born into, verse 4, born of a woman, in other words, fully human, and born under the law. Now, here's the thing, as we've seen, the law was something that we could never keep. And it was given by God that we might see our guilt and condemnation and that we might see our need of Christ as our only means of rescue. And Christ came and being the perfect God-man, he did two things. He kept on our behalf that which we could never keep for ourselves. He perfectly kept the law of God so that we might receive his righteousness. And then he died on our behalf the death that we deserved to die so that he might be the saviour we need. And then he would rise again that we might have in him the life that we're in need of. We who were under the law have been redeemed from it. We are set free from being slaves to sin. 
and instead made to be sons of God by adoption. And God seals it in our hearts by the work of his Holy Spirit. And you as a Christian now experience for yourself in all of its fullness what it is to live as a son and heir, a son of God and an heir with Christ. Do you not now want to live a life which pleases your heavenly father? Well, of course you do. But you don't do it to try and become a son. You do it because you now are a son. And out of love and reverence for your father. The days of slavery are gone. This was always what God had in view for you. If you're a Christian. Now, last Wednesday, we were reminding ourselves of that time when Jesus promised his disciples that he would not leave them as orphans. We were in John chapter 14. The Spirit would come. The Father and Son would come to us and dwell within us, make their home in us. And Jesus, even now, is preparing that eternal inheritance that we have. Because we are heirs and sons. And this is precisely what Paul is talking about here. And so it shouldn't come as any surprise to us, should it? Because the Jesus who spoke those things to his disciples in John chapter 14 is the same Jesus who's been revealing these things to Paul by revelation as Paul was telling us in chapters 1 and 2. I said last time, we need to think these things through because the Christian faith is based upon truth and there are things you need to know. But all of that truth is intended to lead you here to the realities of verses 4 to 7 that you might know what it is to believe in him who first loved you and gave himself for you, to receive Christ by faith, to become a child of the promise, to be made a child of God, a descendant of Abraham, to know God's love for you and to love him as your father to come into this new experience of sonship it's what is what had always been promised it's what was always in view and under the law was your time of preparation for it all that you are is of God in his compassion and grace. What is it, this, this son now, now that he has finally been established as, as a son, in the full experience of it, what is it that makes him different to all of the slaves? 
Well, it's just one thing. Who his father is. And it's the same for you if you're a Christian. Uh, What is it that secures this son's future? Well, it's the fact that he's a son. And that on the basis of that, he has an inheritance. What role did the son play in producing any of this for himself? None at all. It's all down to his father. And this is the the wonderful illustration that Paul is using here to speak of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be in Christ. It's to be brought from slavery and bondage under the burden of sin and to be set free and liberated from that, to become a child of God. The law in terms of that which God requires of you, well, that still stands. But your relationship to it has been completely changed. You're no longer striving to keep it in order that you might make yourself right with God. For God himself has made you to be his child, which you receive by faith. And now out of love for him, you live for him. And so Paul concludes by asking the simple question, given that that's what's happened to you, why would you put yourself back under bondage? Why would you put yourselves back into slavery? Verses 8 to 11, which is what these believers in the Galatian churches have been doing. Here's this young man, now in his late teens, who occupies a very different, elevated place in the family home compared to the one he's known in his childhood. This young man who now, when he walks out on the streets and in the marketplace, is himself offered a degree of respect similar to his father. Because now he is seen as being his father's son. He is being acknowledged as the son that he truly is. This is the son and heir of that man and now he receives honour and respect on account of that. Think of all the Greek young men who at the appointed time were released from their tutor and welcomed as sons. All the privileges now that they knew and experienced and lived in. Do you suppose there was a single one of them who ever thought to themselves, hmm, this sonship lark isn't all that it's cracked up to be. I think I'll go back and carry on as a slave. Can you imagine that happening? Abandoning their liberty to put themselves back under the rigid, demanding authority of their paedagogos? Why have you done that? Paul asks the Galatians. Why have you done that? Why would you? Why have you abandoned any notion of being sons and put yourselves back into slavery. For these Galatian believers, who were of Jewish origin, it involved relying again upon aspects of Old Testament law as being necessary for salvation. Why would you go back there, when by faith, by God's grace, 
through Christ your Son. For Gentile believers who have been converted for the very first time, some of them have become convinced that they need to strictly follow codes of Old Testament law. But it applies to anything at all. Weak and beggarly elements, Paul says in verse 9, observing days and months and seasons and years. Uh, anyone or anything that would tell you, if you want to be a Christian, you must add to what you already are and have in Christ. You must add to it this and this and this. Or if you want to be a proper church, you must have that and that and that. And gradually you begin to rely upon this and that as being something that is necessary to make you acceptable to God. You're not a real church or a proper church if you don't have this. You're not a real Christian if you're not doing that. If you've not had, if you're not observing these things, dear, oh dear. No, says Paul. It's thinking like that which makes you less than you should be, not more. Put yourself under Christ. Put yourself under his word. Keep yourselves in the true gospel. You have all that you need in Christ to try and add something else as being necessary in addition to him is to make it not the gospel at all. To add is to subtract. Keep yourselves in the true gospel. You as a Christian, you are the result of God's promise to Abraham. You are a Christian if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and put your faith in him. The law of God has convinced you that you can never be good and so you've turned to him with a humble and contrite heart so that you might be filled with the goodness of God in Christ. You're a Christian when you have that assurance in your soul that because of Christ, God is your father and you are his child. That's the work of God's spirit within you. The whole trinity involved in your salvation. Your life and your life is filled with joy and peace, not because you've learned how to love and esteem yourself, but because in loving and esteeming Christ, you've been filled with his joy and his peace. And as the son of the most high God, your eternal inheritance is assured. You've been brought from slavery to sonship. Why would you ever want to do anything or embrace anything that actually was taking you backwards, back into slavery again? We have all that we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the promise that we by faith might be children of God, just like believing Abraham.